You're listening to the Dwell on These Things podcast, a regular dose of Christ-centered encouragement to put your mind in a better place. Listen in as Pastor John Stonge shares Bible studies, interviews, training, and some of his most recent sermons. We're glad to have you with us today. Well, good evening and welcome to our midweek Bible study. We're grateful to have you with us this evening. And this evening, we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, starting with verse 28. We're going to work our way down to chapter 3, verse 10. And you're going to see as we look at this portion of Scripture that, that tonight we're going to be talking about what it means to be a child of God. In fact, this portion of Scripture talks about several distinct aspects of being a child of God. And I think that this is an interesting discussion, and I'll certainly be interested to hear some of the thoughts that our group has once we get to our discussion time. Um, Because I think everybody assumes, or not everybody, but many people assume that we're all children of God. I, I hear that frequently said, that we're all children of God. And in one sense, Yes, I guess you could say that that's true, but there's another sense where that's not true. And the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, starting with verse 28, he makes a distinction between those who are eternal children of God and those who aren't. And so we will be looking at those distinctions. Now, let me give you a little bit of background here as we prepare for this. And we, we've been doing this each week as we've been going through the book of First John, just to make sure that we're all on the same page. But the book of First John was written by the Apostle John. It was written right around the year A.D. 90. And it was written from the city of Ephesus. Uh, that's a city where the Apostle John served in church leadership for a period of time. It's also where John, um, or this was also before John was exiled to the island of Patmos. If you remember, Patmos is where John wrote down the book of Revelation. But this was written before Revelation was written down. And as we've seen in previous weeks, there are some concepts that are repeated in First John and in the book of Revelation, specifically when he's discussing the concept of the Antichrist. And you can see that in uh, greater detail in the book of Revelation. But John tried to accomplish multiple things with this letter. He uh, attempted to bolster the faith of the believers. That seemed to be something he was genuinely concerned with. He also tried to correct false teaching, and there was a variety of false teaching that was being spread in that particular context. And so in this era, before the New Testament was complete, you really had the church leaders with some extra effort that they really needed to put into um into preventing false teaching from being spread. And that was definitely a challenge during the early days of the church. Now, throughout the course of this letter, you have John stressing a variety of concepts, and we've looked at some of these already in our previous studies over previous weeks. Uh, He talks about having fellowship with God and what that looks like. He also talks about the need for believers to confess our sin, and we're invited to confess our sin to one another. We're invited to confess our sin to the Lord. Uh, he talks about this idea of loving God. When when you look at the things that Scripture reveals to us about the Apostle John, that seemed to be something that he was highly focused on, the idea of loving God. And then the next thing I have here on the list, loving one another. So he believed that that was one of the the, the defining features of a true believer in Christ, that we would love God and we would love one another. He also talks about knowing God personally. He also acknowledges Christ's divinity. We see all of this in great detail in the book of 1 John. 
But now in tonight's passage, and so we're going we're gonna to pick up with the tail end of chapter 2, and then we're going to segue into chapter 3. In tonight's passage, the Apostle John is going to teach us about what it really means to be a child of, uh, of God and to live as one of God's children. So we're learning what it means to be a child of God and what it looks like to live as one of his children in the midst of this corrupt generation. And this mindset and this lifestyle that John's going to describe here for us, it's drastically different from those who continue to live as children of the devil. And in fact, that's what John calls those who do not have faith in Christ. He refers to them as children of the devil. So we're going to actually see what he means by that. And I think that he's really inviting us to wrestle with some of these thoughts. So let's start with 1 John chapter 2. We're going to pick up with verse 28, and we're going to look at verse 29 as well. But the question I want to ask as we begin our study of this passage of Scripture is this, how can we have lasting confidence? And I'm phrasing it that way because I think there are many people in this world who would tell you that that they love uh, expressing confidence, they want to demonstrate confidence, they want to have more confidence. But I think a lot of times when we think about confidence, we're actually setting ourselves up to, to not fully understand what Scripture is re- revealing to us as far as the kind of confidence that the Lord wants us to have. And in fact, the kind of confidence that the Lord gives to us as a gift. So look what it says, starting with verse 28. We'll begin there, and I'll, I'll read down to verse 29 for starters, where we learn how can we have lasting confidence? Well, it says this, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So let's think about these statements here and some of the things that John's trying to help us to understand. I love how he opens up this portion of Scripture here, similar to how he's opened up other sections or other statements by referring to the reader and and the recipient of this letter as a child. And here he says, and now little children. And again, he's not saying this necessarily referencing the fact that they would be biologically little or biologically young. He's speaking as someone who is an elderly man, someone who who has made uh, many trips around the sun, right? So he's an older man. He's someone who's been a believer for many decades at this point now. He's speaking to people who are new believers and people who are younger than him and people who would look to him for spiritual guidance. So they, many of them would look at him as like a, a spiritual father. And uh, so he refers to them in an affectionate way as little children. But I think it's also helpful for us, no matter what season of life we're at, or no matter how old we are, to just think of ourselves as children, because if we're genuinely children of God, I think it's helpful for us to understand that as children, we're invited to walk by faith, we're invited to trust in Him, and we're invited to accept his leadership and welcome his leadership. And so that's the kind of posture we should be taking in regard to God, because many people spend their lives essentially puffing their chests toward God or acting like they've got everything figured out. But yet the mindset of humility that we as believers in Christ should demonstrate is like the faith of a child being exhibited in an adult life. And so he says, and now little children, and he encourages us to abide in him. So he wants us to abide in Christ. He wants us to abide in the Lord. 
And again, that's a term that we've talked about uh, at other points when we've been going through the book of First John. But it's the idea of remaining connected to him. It's the idea of not trying to live your life separate from him and go your own direction or do your own thing. We abide in him. We rely on him for our strength and for our guidance and uh, for the ability that we need to live the Christian life. We're called to abide in him, not distance ourselves from him, not try to rely on our own power, but to tap into the power that's given to us as we trust in Jesus Christ and walk by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. We're called to abide in him. And John says the reason we should do this here, he says, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now, I believe so it's it's my belief, it's the belief of, of, of many believers that Jesus could return at any moment. I believe that that's what Scripture is, is indicating to us, that, there, that at any moment he could come. So I, you know, I, I wake up every day thinking, you know, today could be the day Christ comes. When I'm, when I'm making plans for the future, I think, okay, this, this may or may not come to pass because if Christ comes before, um, you know, these things actually have the opportunity to, to come to pass, you know, it, it very well may be that a new era of history is ushered in at that very moment. And I often wonder if I'm living on this earth still when Christ returns, I often wonder what I'll be doing. I'd be perfectly fine with him coming back while I'm leading a Bible study like I'm doing right now. Um, I'd be a little less fine if he chose to come back when uh, maybe I'm, I'm in, engaged in a selfish debate with a friend or, or an argument, uh, you know, at, at, in some context, or, or if I'm just, uh, you know, engaged in anything that, that really wouldn't be ideal. Um, I would much prefer to be walking with him instead of running away from him. And so here you have John saying, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So it's the idea of saying, all right, I'm going to walk with Christ all the days of my life. I'm not going to be one of those people who spends his life running from Christ, but then thinks maybe at the last second, I could just say, okay, Jesus, I goofed it all up. Sorry. Um, John's not implying that that be the way we we approach our Christian walk. He wants us to have confidence in our walk with Christ. And the only way you and I will have confidence in our walk with Christ is if we're actually walking with him. If I spend the bulk of my energy and, and the bulk of my time trying to do my own thing, there's always going to be this nagging voice in my conscience that's going to be reminding me that this is not right. This is not good. This is not healthy. And what that does is it chips away at our confidence. It chips away at, at the feeling of certainty that we get to enjoy when we know that we're walking in the truth. I remember several years ago, and I've, I've shared this multiple times, but I remember um, right around 2015, I started to notice that I wasn't feeling right emotionally. And I think if I'm, if I'm really transparent, I wasn't feeling right spiritually either. There, there was just something going on, and I just kind of had to take a hard look at my own life and my own motivations and my own mindset and all those things and realize that there were certain things that I needed to submit to Christ that I wasn't submitting to Him. And because I was trying to do certain things my own way and not submit certain areas of my life over to him, it was actually producing depression in my life. And I, I really identified that as a source of those depressive feelings. And I remember at that point just deciding, all right, Lord, 
I don't like feeling this way. And I think it's because there are certain areas of my life I'm still trying to hold back from you. And so I, I went through a season of just of genuine confession over to the Lord and just repenting of those selfish motives and, and uh, just giving that over to the Lord and watching as he changed my mind and watching as he changed my heart and watching as he lifted that fog from over me. And I think that that's very similar to what John's talking about here when he says, when he, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Well, there are those that are going to shrink from Christ in shame at his coming because they don't know him. But those of us who do know him, those of us who are genuinely abiding in him, will be able to have confidence in Christ at his coming. And then in, in verse 29, John says, if you know that he is righteous, and we certainly know that Christ is righteous. Christ is is perfect. Christ is sinless. It says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. It's interesting when you look at the book of the Gospel of John in particular, um, Jesus has a conversation in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, where he's talking to him about this need to be born again. And Nicodemus is scratching his head saying, that doesn't sound possible. And he's joking about it in the sense that he, he's treating what Jesus is saying as if it's just a physical act. And, and Jesus is making it clear that, no, you need a new spiritual birth. And what happens when we trust in Christ is that we are born spiritually. And Scripture tells us that the righteousness of Christ is given to us as a gift. So we had no, righteous, no righteousness of our own to offer to him, uh, and so what he does is he gives us his righteousness, so that gives us the opportunity to stand before the throne of God and be counted as righteous. We're declared righteous. We're justified in Christ. And so we're told here that, it, that as he is righteous and he's given us a new birth in him, we can also practice righteousness, but it's not righteousness that comes from us. It's us basically just living out the righteousness that Christ has given to us as a gift, and it's demonstration or a demonstration of the fact that Jesus lives within us. So when that demonstration takes place, it it has a capacity to convince our minds and convince our hearts that Christ lives within us, and it contribute it, it contributes to the confidence that we have in Christ, the same kind of confidence that we can display when He returns, because we know we are united to Him. So John ends First John chapter two with these thoughts. But then he segues into 1 John chapter 3 with some additional thoughts that that continue this line of thinking. And one of the things that he tells us in the first three verses of 1 John chapter 3 is the fact that God's children will be like him. Now, what is what's meant by that? So look at look at uh, 1 John chapter 3, starting with verse 1. This is what he says, and I'll read down to verse 3, but he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears— we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
So there's a variety of things that the Apostle John is trying to communicate in these statements. I think one of the things he's trying to communicate is the fact that we are not to live with the mindset or the behaviors that we see demonstrated in this world. And so that I think that's why he, he concludes with verse 3, where he says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. He's encouraging us to abide in Christ. He's encouraging us to walk in purity and not to adopt this world's pattern or this world's mindset or this world's behavior as our own. But he goes on. He starts this section off by saying he he's focusing on the love of God, and he says, "See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God." That is a genuine blessing. That's a genuine gift. That's not something that we deserve. I don't deserve to be able to look at God the Father and to be able to have that kind of friendly and familial re- relationship with Him that He offers me, that He allows me to have, but. I get to be called a child of God because God the Father has demonstrated his love toward me and toward you in this kind of capacity. And so here John is saying, this isn't just theoretical, this is what is. He says, and so we are. He's making a declarative statement there. He says, and so we are. We are not just theoretically children of God and not just generically children of God, but specifically part of God's eternal family. And he's saying the, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So he's, he's going to be demonstrating here that not everybody has the designation as child of God. So not everyone in this world is a child of God in the way that John is using that phrase in this passage here. And I'll explain a little bit further as we get along here. But he, he says the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And so if the world does not know him, how could they be claiming to live in a a, a deep abiding family relationship with their creator if they don't if they don't know him that's not the nature of their relationship their relationship is one of distance where they do not know him but the world does not know us because they do not know him and that's why the world does not recognize who we are or really appreciate what god has done for us because their priorities are not lined up with what matters most to god but John's saying a change has taken place. We've experienced a new birth. And in verse 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And he's saying it that way because he's implying that we weren't always what we presently are. It, it can't be said of us that we were always God's children. He's saying, Beloved, we are God's children now. And the implication there is that there was a previous time where that wasn't the case. But he also says some things that are a little bit mysterious here and very curious. He says, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So I don't know if you wondered what he was getting at when he said that, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But what he's talking about here is what it's going to look like when we are fully recreated. So Scripture reveals to us, and you can find more details about this in 1 Corinthians 15, that we have a resurrected body to look forward to. And when you look in the book of Revelation chapter 20, it also tells us that there's going to be a day where there's no more crying, mourning, pain, sorrow, all of those things, those are all going to go away. So right now I could tell you there are several parts of my body that hurt, and they always hurt, right? They'll just hurt for the rest of my life. They're, they remind me of injuries I've sustained or parts of my body that are wearing out. My wife was making fun of me the other day because she could read something on a distant sign that I was squinting to see, and part of it I couldn't read at all. And so that's 
pretty uh, convincing demonstration that, that parts of my body are wearing out. My eyesight is not getting better. It's going in the wrong direction. I don't yet need to wear glasses, but guess what? I'm guessing pretty soon I'm going to want to wear glasses if my eyesight continues to deteriorate. But what we will be has not yet appeared, meaning this new glorified body that uh, that we have been promised as those who have been united to Christ, we don't have that yet, but we will have that. And it's kind of interesting because here John is alluding to that. In fact, he's saying it directly. He says, but we know that when he appears, so he's talking about when Christ comes, he says, we know that when he, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So think about Jesus post-resurrection. After Christ rose from the grave, he started uh, just interacting with people in a glorified body. They had previously known him in, in you know, what we would say is like an earthly body, right? A, a body that was subject to pain, a body that was subject uh, to death. But now he appeared to them after his resurrection in a glorified body. And John is telling us that when he appears, we shall be like him. So that day is coming. When you look at this portion of Scripture and when you compare it to things like 1 Corinthians 15 and other portions of Scripture as well, we're being told that we will have a glorified body, a new body that is not subject to decay, not subject to pain. It doesn't sin. It doesn't have limitations like our our present body has. It's going to be. It's going to experience um, just all sorts of better things compared to what our present body has. Now, we're not going to be omniscient. We're not going to be omnipotent. We're not going to be omnipresent. Those are things that are reserved for God. That's not something that that we will experience, but our new glorified body will be a body that is fit for our eternal dwelling. It will never decay. It will never be subject to sin. It will not be experiencing pain, and it's going to feel good and look good, and operate well. And so all the things that that presently frustrate you about your current body, you and I can look forward to the fact that that's not an an eternal struggle that we're going to wrestle with. Whatever issues you presently, whatever issues you presently have, whatever concerns you presently deal with, whatever things are, are painful to you now, those are not going to be eternal realities, because we will be like him, and we will see him like he is. And again, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Then when you get to verse 4 down to verse 8, John gets back to this idea of how you and I are living our lives. What is your ongoing practice? So he's giving us a glimpse of what's coming in the future. He's saying, all right, there's some really good stuff in store. The Lord has promised you and me that we're going to be like him. And we're not going to be sinful, and we're not going to struggle with sin. So since that's our future, why embrace sin now? Why embrace things that are unhealthy, unwise, and unholy now? So what is your ongoing practice? Well, he challenges us with this. When you look at verses 4 through 8 of 1 John chapter 3, he says this, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil." 
For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So that's what John says here in this passage. It's very distinct. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to encourage us to stop embracing worldly lawlessness. And he's saying it here, when you look at that opening verse, he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And so he's saying, you know, it's the idea of, of throwing off restraint. It's the idea of, of not living according to the dictates of a redeemed conscience. He's saying you're just throwing off restraint. You're throwing off law. You're, you're embracing disorder instead of, instead of welcoming the kind of order and structure that only the Lord can facilitate. And he's saying if that's the practice of your life, well, he, he's, saying, he's saying that ultimately you're demonstrating that you don't know the Lord. Because everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Now, here's the thing. John already made it clear earlier in this book that we as believers still struggle with sin. So there's a, a difference between struggling with sin and then not considering it a struggle at all, right? So I struggle with sin, meaning when I notice that there's sin in my life, I try to identify that, I try to confess that to the Lord, and then, it, then I ask Him for the power to repent of it. And that's a very different mindset from an earlier season of my life where I would embrace sin. So if I'm embracing sin, I'm basically saying, all right, Lord, I'm not interested in embracing you. I'm interested in embracing worldly values and worldly sin. And here John's saying, if you make a practice of sinning, if basically your life is, is, is demonstrating that your whole focus is to just embrace worldly sinfulness, you're demonstrating that you don't know the Lord at all. And he's saying, let no one deceive you, children, right? He's saying, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So if, you know, if we're ultimately living in the righteousness that Christ supplies to our life, and we're walking in that righteousness and demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, that's evidence of the fact that the Lord's changed our mind and changed our heart and pushed us toward healthy things and enabled us to, to walk in a direction that glorifies him. And he's saying, if, if, if righteousness is coming from your life, the reason it's coming from your life like fruit is because your heart has been transformed by the righteousness of Christ. But he's saying, if you make a practice of sinning, you're demonstrating, if you embrace sin, you're demonstrating that your priorities and your mindset and your life is still dedicated to the work of the devil. He's saying the devil's been sinning from the beginning, and Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So if you love Jesus, if Jesus lives within you, you're not going to continue to embrace the work of Satan. You're embracing the new work that God is accomplishing. And so John is, is asking us to examine our lives here, basically, and he's saying, all right, what's your ongoing practice? If your ongoing practice is to embrace worldly sinfulness and worldly lawlessness, you need to examine whether you know the Lord to begin with. But if the fruit of the righteousness of Christ is being demonstrated in your life, what you're seeing here is the fruit of faith, the fruit of belief. As you trust in Jesus, he empowers you to demonstrate his righteousness because he gives you his righteousness as a gift. So we want to examine what our ongoing practice happens to be. But then John brings up one other thing in the section that we're looking at tonight, and this is the last part that we'll look at before we open up our, our mics for discussion here, and that's this. He shows us here that, that your real identity, who you really are, is going to become evident in your life. And what I mean by that is this. Look at what it says in 1 John 3, starting with verse 9. He says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, 
For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John's very specific in his direction here, but again, he he echoes the thought that we just looked at in the previous verses. Again, he says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So again, he's not talking about the fact that you and I struggle with sin. He's talking about the mindset and the pattern of living that someone defines their whole life with. And so he's saying, all right, you know, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. If you're just going to completely throw yourself into embracing worldly sinfulness, it's obvious you have not been born again. But he says, and he even says here, because God's seed abides in him. This is the idea that he's talking about the fact that the the spirit of God um, lives within us. We are empowered not to embrace sin. The Lord changes our desires. He changes our ambitions. He changes what we dedicate our life toward. And he says, and he cannot keep on sinning. There's, our conscience is going to be troubled by it. If we invite things into our mind or into our life that don't belong there, our conscience is going to be troubled by it. We're not going to have peace until we finally just give it over to the Lord and say, Lord, I can't embrace this anymore. I need freedom from this. We submit it over to the Lord, and that's evidence of the fact that the Spirit of God lives within us. We have been born of God. That changed desire is evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. And John here is saying, basically, your real identity is going to become evident in your life. So if you're embracing the heart of God, if you're embracing a lifestyle that honors Christ, a, a life that ultimately demonstrates that you genuine that you genuinely believe in Jesus, he says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So he's drawing a contrast here. And again, I hear it said quite frequently that we're all children of God. And according to John, he's he's drawing a line. He's saying, no, some people are children of God, and some people are children of the devil. So what's the distinction? Why is John drawing this line, and, and why can't it be said that we're all children of God? Well, there's there's two aspects of this that I think we need to think about. First of all, all human beings have been created by God. So in that respect, we can say, yeah, God is the the father of creation. Right? He spoke creation into existence, and he formed humanity out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed life into that first man, Adam, and we come from Adam. And so in that sense, okay, I get it when we say that we are children of God. Yes, God created us. You know, we are, we are his offspring, right, we could say in that respect. But John's going deeper here. He's saying, okay, I want to talk about those who are living as part of God's family those who have been, um, ultimately, those who have embraced the Lord, those who see the Lord as their Father, not as one who see the Lord as distant or who don't even believe that He exists. And he's saying, spiritually speaking, yes, you've had a physical birth, right? So physically speaking, you can say, I'm a child of God, physically speaking. But guess what? Your physical body is going to die, and um, yes, you'll, you'll get a new physical body fit for eternity that's fashioned out of this one. Um, but at the same time, he's talking about spiritual life here and spiritual birth. And, and unless we are born again, born spiritually, we cannot claim to be spiritual children 
of God. And that's what he's getting at here. He's getting at the spiritual realm. He's saying, by this, it is evident who are the children of God. So I could even, you know, suggest what he's saying is the spiritual children of God. It's evident in my life that I am the spiritual child of God because I demonstrate spiritual fruit in my life that has been fostered by his power, that has been, um, that's something I desire to show because he's changed my desires. He's worked in my mind and worked in my life. So I'm now a spiritual child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and I've been adopted into God's family. But he, he contrasts that with those who are the children of the devil, meaning those who have aligned themselves spiritually with the priorities of Satan. And he says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. If we are of God, if God lives within us, the righteousness of Christ is going to be demonstrated in our life. And he also says, another way you could tell that somebody truly does not know the Lord is they don't love their brother. So God loves your brother. And if you can't love the one that God loves, then how can you, how can you say that you are united in spirit with the Lord? And so John is saying, you know, if you don't practice righteousness, you're demonstrating you don't know the Lord. And if you don't love other people, you're demonstrating that you don't know the Lord. And so he's, he's making some very declarative statements here, but it's helpful to see, and he's trying to show us that if we've been born again, so again, when you look back at verse 9, he says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. He's saying, no one born of God is going to align the desires of his life with the ambitions of Satan. And I think that that's useful for me to hear again. I think it's useful for all of us to hear again. The Lord wants us to abide in him, to align the desires of our hearts with his desires and to walk with the strength that he supplies and the guidance that he gives. Now, in just a moment, we're going to open up our mics and we're going to discuss some of these things. I, I really think there's a lot to discuss here. So I'll be interested to hear some of your thoughts and some of your insights. Two quick announcements before I do that. First of all, uh, I had to change the dates for a variety of reasons for what we're doing for the upcoming Bible studies. You notice that uh, tonight's Bible study, we were initially going to have it last week, but I had to change the date to that and transition it to this evening. And our next Bible study is scheduled for May 18th, and we're going to be talking about this concept of loving one another that John emphasizes in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 24. And then on June 1st, we're going to talk about what he means when he says, test the spirits. So you're welcome to look ahead, but he, he speaks of this in 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. So just kind of make a note of those dates, and if you're able to join us for them, we would love if you're able to be part of that. But one other announcement that I just want to make mention to you, uh, a book that I have been working on for for a couple of years, so the process to write this book began in 2019. Well, this book is about to come out in three weeks, exactly three weeks from today, so it's going to be coming out on May 25th, and uh, my upcoming book is called Dwell on These Things, and it's a 31-day challenge to talk to yourself like God talks to you. And so this book uh, is going to be very easy to find. It's You're going to be able to find it, I think, pretty much in any store. So if you walk into Barnes & Noble, you'll find it there. If you walk into Target, if you walk into Walmart, it really should be just about anywhere. And I'd love to get... Um, you know, just to encourage you to pick up a copy if it's a concept that interests you. But I'd also love to get feedback from those of you that have the opportunity to read it. It's something that I poured a lot of time in, in into creating and um, really had a great opportunity to work with a great publisher on this one. I was working with Waterbrook, which is a division of Penguin Random House, and their distribution for this really just has me 
um, amazed and very grateful. So I hope that if this is a concept that interests you, that you'll you'll take a chance on picking up a copy and uh, that it'll be something that encourages you. Again, if you're listening to the podcast and can't really see this on video here, the book's called Dwell on These Things, and it's a 31-day challenge to talk to yourself like God talks to you. And again, it should be available just about anywhere you go on May 25th. And so I hope that you'll consider uh, taking a look at it. And um, and by the way, if you ac- actually want to read the first three chapters for free, just go to my website, desirejesus.com. The first three chapters are posted there. I got permission from the publisher uh, to post a few chapters there so people could check it out and see if it's something that they might enjoy. So just stop by desirejesus.com and uh, you could check it out. So let me uh, stop the screen share here and I'm going to bring us up on the screen. And I can see everybody there. Good to see everybody. All right. I see New Hampshire is now represented and I see Pittsburgh is now represented. All right. So let's see. Let me let me just do the rundown here. We've got Canada. And I wonder, uh, Connie Lee, maybe you could even put in the comments here, where in Canada are you located? So where in Canada is Connie Lee from? Uh, but we've got Julia from Denver. We've got Don from Pittsburgh. Uh, let's see. We've got Paul from New Hampshire, Tim from Virginia. And we've got Ian and Renee in Pennsylvania, Andrea in Pennsylvania, and yours truly here in Pennsylvania. All right, Connie Lee says she's from Alberta. So anyone listening to the podcast, if you're if you're listening from Alberta, uh, Connie Lee is representing you and uh, and your entire region, your entire nation, really, right now. Connie Lee is representing the 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 great nation of of Canada, and so we're grateful that she could be on here. Uh, Connie Lee, I'll, I'll tell you a cute story here real quick. When uh, I was visiting my wife's church, uh, this is even before we were married. So we were, I don't even think we were engaged yet. We were just dating at the time. And uh, we visited her home church, which is near Buffalo, New York. Uh, they had a hymn sing the one night and uh, anyone could call out whatever they would like anyone to sing. And, um, and so a young child uh, asked if they could sing, Oh, Canada that evening for the for the hymn sing (laughs) so uh i uh, you know i hope you appreciate that connie lee because that's that's what we were invited to sing that night for the hymn sing oh canada and um and that was that was in in buffalo new york so definitely some warm feelings toward canada and buffalo new york all right so let's start off with a few questions here first of all uh in in that first section you have the Apostle John talking about this idea of confidence, the confidence that we can have when Christ appears. And I wonder if if maybe, um, you know, some of us or, or even one of us could give us an idea of what you think it looks like to express confidence in Christ right here and right now. So in your day-to-day life, what does it look like to demonstrate confidence in Christ? How does that, how does that thought just show forth from your life? Or what do you think that looks like in the day-to-day life of a believer right now? All right, Don. Don, I'm always so grateful when you break the ice for us. We we need that icebreaker. That's your role. I got one of them big ice scrapers, or I, I, ice icebreakers. Scrape, icebreakers. I was right. just thinking, I think I just lost my train of thought. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think the answer, I, the one word answer I have is, uh, is peace. In the middle of a lot of times somebody will be talking to me and having some kind of traumatic thing going on in their life, or, uh, uh, maybe I'm in the same, same boat as somebody and, 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 and it's really hitting the fan, so to speak, but having that peace, knowing that whatever it is, 
I'll get through it. And, uh, you know, it may be a lesson that God has for me. Uh, maybe he has me there for the reason of, you know, being the voice of reason or the voice of calm, but that, that peace that surpasses all understanding, I think, uh, is how, how I, how I know that, uh, I'm, I'm leaning in on him and, and it might be evident to other people that, uh, that I'm connected because of the peace. Yeah. So it's, so you see, uh, the, the peace that passes all understanding be a demonstration, uh, being a demonstration of the confidence that you've been given through Christ. So, yeah, that's a good example of that. And anyone else have a, a thought on that? What does the confidence that you have in Christ look like as it gets demonstrated in your life or just in general? What do you think that looks like in the life of a believer? For me, I would say that um, I tend to always line up my life to, according to God's word. So if I'm not sure about something, I always go back to the word and say, how does it align? Um, and as we were talking about righteousness, what is even righteousness? So you got to go back to God's word and say, what is righteousness? Because in this world, we're hearing lots of different voices, but I always go back to God's word and say, okay, am I in alignment with what he's saying? Or am I doing what I'm doing? Or am I doing what the world's doing? I like that. Yeah, the, the uh, uh, doctrinal statement that I ascribe to says that the word of God is our rule for faith and practice. So the, the Word of God is, is what we refer to when we're trying to make decisions on, is this right or is this wrong? Is this something I should invite in my life? Is it, is it something that's a worldly priority? And uh, the Word of God being the rule for our faith and practice. And so what I'm hearing from you, Julia, is the idea that, that you feel confident when your life is lining up with the revealed teaching of God's Word. I like that. Like that. Any uh, any other thoughts on that? On what what it looks like to to live with confidence in Christ. One thing I was wondering, um, and I don't know if anyone would have a thought on this. I could certainly contribute to the conversation as well. But um, in the midst of seasons of trials, I I um, I didn't know if anyone had any thought related to that. I, one of the things that I know um, that I think is a, a real blessing is that when seasons of trial come, I feel like I have confidence in Christ, that it's only going to be for a season, and that it's ultimately going to be used by him in some way to produce something good. And I think that that would probably very well fit with this idea of the confidence that we have in Christ in the midst of our day-to-day experiences. I don't know if that that's a thought that maybe occurred to some others as well. Yeah, I see heads nodding. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just it's just how the Lord tends to operate in our lives and operate in our hearts. So let, let's jump to that to that next section there, the opening verses of First John chapter three. Let me ask you a couple things related to that. So in that portion of scripture, here you know it's talking about the love of of the Father and the fact that we're called children of God. But then it makes this statement. It says the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. So. In your day-to-day life, I'm assuming if you're trying to live out your Christian faith, there have been seasons where you have felt a certain degree of disconnect from a variety of people in this world. And I wonder how you handle that, especially with what it reveals here. It's saying, all right, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Is this something you remind yourself of when people think your behavior as a believer in Christ is strange? What do you preach to your heart when sometimes you feel like maybe you don't fit in with some of the things that you're seeing or experiencing 
from others, when the world's priorities aren't your priorities, or when the world's actions aren't the ways you handle things. Um, you know, again, it says the reason the the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. How does this How does this like factor into the the things that you're preaching to your heart in the midst of this world? Does anyone here feel like a disconnect at times from what you value and from what this world values? I think that's an encouragement because, you know, I think sometimes we just have this false assumption that everything is just supposed to go perfectly smoothly for us. And just a reminder that it didn't go smoothly for Jesus. It didn't go smoothly for uh, his prophets it didn't go smoothly for his disciples like we're in a long line of it not going smoothly for people here on this earth so in many ways i feel like that's an encouragement just because it reminds us that we're not alone in that yeah so you 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 feel like a sense of uh, camaraderie when you hear a statement like that yeah paul i saw your hand go up there too uh yeah i'm, I'm not quite sure how to answer but uh, let me say it this way Probably, I may be, Don and I, one of us is the oldest one here. Uh, and I think it's me. But uh, I remember, you know, and being being uh, a, a, a Catholic and always walking around with this collar, yeah. when I was younger, it was not, it was always the common thing to say, oh, Father, or something like that. It didn't matter whether you were a Lutheran or whatever your background was, if you had a collar, and there was, there was respect that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, there's, there's, there's no acknowledgement at all, especially when it's this obvious. Uh, but, uh, so I, and I'm, again, I'm not quite sure if this is the right answer or the right, if this is where you're looking, but I try to approach people and I wait for, I wait for an opportunity because if I don't, if, if they're not going to be receptive, then, you know, it's talking to the hand, which mm-hmm. is a phrase from 20 years ago. But uh, uh, it's talking to the hand. Uh, but if a person is receptive, and usually God will give you an indication of that, too, then you share. Uh, and uh, you, 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 you try, to, uh, uh, try to tell them, you know, the, the impact that, he's, that God has had on your life. But it's a, it's a quite different world out there than it was uh, 40 years ago. You're absolutely correct. It, it, in many respects, it very much is. But Paul, you know, here you're saying you're the, the oldest one on the call, and yet you're using all these uh, uh, current catchphrases demonstrating just how with it you are. So. No, no, call, talk to the hand is at least 20 years old. My son's <laughs> 33, and <laughs> I know uh, Ian and, and his uh, wife, they, they were right away, they started laughing when I said 20. They know. You know, I'm old. Oh, yeah. No, I like that. Every time I hear that phrase said now, I'm going to think of you. So <laughs> that's, in, that's in my mind now. But yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, we, li- we live in a, a, a day and age where you, you can't obviously assume that somebody's going to, to value things of, of faith. And, and that's become, it's certainly become more pronounced in, you know, in, in recent years, and it continues moving in that direction. So, um, so, yeah, but I, I, I do think, you know, here where it's saying, um, you know, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. I, when I look at that, too, I also think, OK, I should not expect an unbelieving world to value 
the same things I'm valuing. I should not expect an unbelieving world to value what what matters to Christ. Uh, the world, <laughs> look at what the world did to him when he came. And uh, as as a follower of Christ, I really shouldn't expect any better treatment than what he received. And so it, it, it's almost like a preparatory statement in some respects, you know, where you look at and, and even think about the, the things the Apostle John experienced. They tried to kill him. He just didn't die, you know, and then they exile him. And so this is something he had to preach to his own heart as well. He's saying, you know, the reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. We're getting treated the same way that our Savior got treated, and we, we should not expect his values to necessarily be embraced by the world, but that doesn't mean we shy away from being his ambassadors. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, another aspect to that, too, I, I can, uh, it, it, similar to this, um, if I ever met Don uh, on the road or somewhere on the street, you know, I would, I might not remember him, but if I saw a Steeler, uh, a Steeler emblem on his car or something, there would be, there would be an immediate recognition because, uh, you know, Steeler fans, they, just like any other sports fans, I imagine there's others that like the Eagles too. I don't know. But, I do. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm just saying, I imagine. But, uh, but uh, the reason I'm saying that is we, it, it, it makes you feel better when you see something like that. You see that that uh, uh, relationship, that that's thing you have in common. I think when we speak of the joy of Christianity, I think there you go. I can show you mine. I have it in Polish. It says "ten straszny ręczny." That means the terrible towel in Polish. Oh, good. Uh, anyway, uh, when when you see when when they talk about Christian joy, I think especially it, it, to, today too, but especially in in the apostolic times. Uh, when when you're going into when Paul was going into a strange uh, city with Barnabas or something like that, they came across somebody who was Christian. Imagine the joy that they felt because they were really in the minority. And when we talk about Christian joy today, when when, when we interact with somebody on the street, not in church because you expect it there, but on the street you meet a Christian, there's a real joy that fills your heart. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There is. Yeah. Ian, go ahead. Um, exactly with what you guys are saying, I, I uh, brought to mind a verse that I had read earlier today, uh, which is first uh, Peter uh, four twelve. Uh, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're, you know, if we're reading the Bible, we're, we're told to expect the world to hate us and, yeah, for us to be tried. Yeah, it's saying this isn't strange, right? Don't be don't be shocked. It's not strange. It's not unique to you. You know, you don't even have to take it personal, right? It's not it's not even personal. It's just it is what it is. We're in the midst of a spiritual battle that's taking place and we just we've been warned of that in scripture. We've been made aware of that and there are oftentimes visible demonstrations of that. Um continue John. Oh yeah, go ahead, Julia. Can I yeah say something um i've for myself i've actually found the opposite um is where i feel like i'm very comfortable like showing god's love to those who don't know Mm -hmm. um but i have trouble with just our fellow christians that i'm you know over the last several years i say to myself how is it that we are both christians and our lives are 
and our values and so forth and what we accept in this world are so different. That, so that, that's that has been a big question in my life, like what is going on here and how is it? I mean, I do believe um, that we're kind of in that uh, mode of where God is kind of separating the goats from the sheep. Yeah, I do feel like that's pretty real right now. But I don't know if you can address that and kind of what you think of that, because well, I because I just feel that's very real for my life. <laughs> that's a that's a very good sub point to bring up, and and I'll get to your thought there in a second, Don. I I have a few few thoughts for Julia. Um, so Julia, did you think of some of that when we were reading through that next section where it talks about practicing righteousness versus embracing sin? I don't know if you could hear yeah. me, Julia. Okay, yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry, I just went on mute. Yeah, um, yeah I, I actually, there's many examples, but one specific example I was thinking of was like people who are like addicted, they have some sort of addiction, mm-hmm. and the way that they live their lives, and the way that people surrounding them as Christians respond. Mm-hmm. Treating treating the addiction like it's not something that needs to be repented of, but treating it like it's just a facet of life, right? Right, right. And and yeah. so many things like enabling it, covering up, I mean, lying, lying for the sake of just mm-hmm. so many things. <laughs> yeah, no, there, there's a there's a lot of things I think that fall into that category. I think I think, um, you know, sometimes I, I wonder, uh, you know, so our entertainment choices, I think, could fall into that category. I think sometimes the ways in which we speak to one another, you know, I think we don't it's so easy for us to adopt a worldly pattern and then there seems to also be this fear among believers to not be labeled a legalist. So because you don't want to be labeled a legalist, what you end up doing sometimes is you just give license to all sorts of unhealthy and unholy things. And so your, your point is well made because I actually think that that's part of what John was trying to explain here too, where he's saying, you know, in the sense of, listen, if you're a genuine believer, you don't continue to embrace practicing sin you know, what we as believers are invited to do, because we're still wrestling with sin. You know, there are things I could look at my life and say, all right, that was a season where I was addicted to this, or I was addicted to this. And sometimes addictions fall into obvious categories, and other times they fall into very hidden categories. And so, you know, and usually we get addicted to whatever we think is going to bring rest or peace to our heart, or is going to soothe some level of pain. And so until we're convinced that Jesus is the one that's going to ultimately be the solution, we're going to try and find worldly solutions. And and I see believers, unfortunately, at times dabble with that. And then uh, others kind of affirm it in ways that it's not really very helpful or or useful. So your point's well made. And I I saw Don put his hand up, too. I wanted to make sure to acknowledge his thoughts, too. What do you think, Don? Well, first, I wanted to say that everything that everybody shared with response to this uh i could say been there done that and have experienced yeah. all of those things and uh one thing i feel like i need to add because it's something that gave me uh some struggle and i've gotten victory over it is i would find myself if somebody was rejecting the gospel or or, or saying something derogatory about jesus or about christians or about the bible or about faith I would take it on as as a challenge and be, uh, you know, uh, ready to get combative. And I remember God giving me the revelation that I He doesn't need me to stick up for Him or to fight His battles. 
because I was kind of like in that, ready to get jump into the fray if you use the name of the Lord in vain in my presence or if I quoted a scripture and you said something about the Bible was hooey or, and uh, so that was causing me a little bit of anxiety and, and, and maybe some stress in some relationships. And I got a real freedom when I felt like the Lord telling me, Hey, I got it. I don't need you to be my big brother or anything here. It's the other way around son. And so I don't know if anybody else has experienced that, but I, I wanted to share that because it was a, it was a struggle until he gave me victory over it. And I don't know if anybody else has ever fallen into that, but I feel like I got to defend God. And, and it just, even thinking that now, I was like, where was my head? But I was caught up in that for a while, but now I got some freedom from that. Yeah. Were, were you in your conversation, you're trying to demonstrate more, more fruit of the spirit, like answering with, you know, what does the scripture say? Uh, always be ready to give an answer when someone asks for the hope that you have within you, but do it with gentleness and respect, you know? And I think that's, that's a key thing for sure. I get it. Yeah. What do you think, Paul? I was going to, I agree a hundred percent with Don. And I, I think that any, any Christian who's, uh, you know, been, been along the, the long path, like we have, we've experienced it a million and one times. Um, I, I just wanted to mention too that uh, when John is writing in his letter and where you began with the beginning of the third chapter, he's speaking to Christians. Yeah, uh, he, he's speaking specifically to Christians. Uh, he's not talking about others. He, he's addressing them and he's saying, "This is how you have to to live. Uh, don't look at others. You know, you have no control over what they're going to do." God is going to be the judge anyway. You, that's not your your part in this play. You're part of the body of Christ. Live as a Christian. Do what you believe is correct, and uh, just be the example because that that's that's what you can do. And and if you're if you're not being the example, and he's giving the uh, he's giving those situations where you could fall short, then correct yourself. Uh, you. you you can't make another person believe. You can't make another person uh, follow scriptures you think they should, as you think you should, because people are people are people, and they have to come to Christ on their own. Uh, and he'll draw when they come to. It's like the prodigal son. The whole the the whole uh, story, it, it, and it applies to all of us, and we're on different paths where. Some of us are still eating the husks off of the pigs <laughs> in the mud, while some of us already may have our rings on and a robe around our shoulders. And, and some of us are just getting ready and telling dad, hey, I want half the property. Uh, you, We're all in different uh, paths in life, but just we're called to do the to be the very best Christians we can and lead by example. Don't lead by uh, by telling others how they should be. Very good. Yeah. And, and one, one, uh, last, I see our, our time is just about up, but I want to sneak one last thing in here. Cause this was good discussion tonight, by the way, this was, this felt lively. So I, I, I really liked it. Um, so one thing that John brings up at the very end of the section that we just looked at, that is going to segue nicely into our study for two weeks from now um, he, he says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. 
So that's one thing that he states there. But then he says, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And the whole next section is going to be about this idea of demonstrating love to one another. So I'd just be curious as we finish up tonight, in your mind, what what is the distinct difference between how a Christian understands the concept of loving your brother versus how maybe someone who hasn't had their heart touched by Christ by Christ would look at that same kind of statement? How do we as believers understand that? What do you think, Paul? Go ahead. Not expecting anything in return. All right. So doing so with a heart of generosity, not reciprocity. Okay. All right. And that's good. Any, any other thoughts? Like what, what would be the difference? Do you see any contrast between what we would mean by loving a brother versus what, what this world might think with a statement like that? Love seeks what's best for the other person. Okay. Yeah, so so even at great cost to oneself, right? Okay, so we're seeking what is best. So it's not it's not an emotional thing primarily, right? Okay, go ahead, Don. I just want to make sure that we know the difference. That it's not people pleasing. It's not uh, telling them what they want to hear and patting them on the back if if that's right. not what they, you know what they should have. Yeah, so true love would be telling somebody a hard truth sometimes right? And that could be protective. You know, I had a conversation like that with, uh, with someone in my life just a few weeks ago. And I, I could see that the conversation was going in that direction. And I remember it, there was part of me that wanted to not say the difficult thing because I thought, Oh, if I say this, this opens up as a real can of worms. And I don't know how this is going to be received. And then, uh, and then there was another part of me that thought, you're not going to be able to stomach not telling this person the truth. You just have to tell them the truth and let the chips fall where they fall. And um, I told the truth. I did so in love. So I was gentle, but I was also very clear. And uh, amazingly, the person received it well. <laughs> you know, it was, it, I mean, they asked, they asked my th- direct opinion on something. And I, I thought, I, I can't beat around the bush. I just need to shoot straight here because it doesn't help them in any way. If I try and couch this, I, I need to help them. And it, it was an issue of, it was a, a real struggle, you know, I, I think for this person, I, I think they, uh, you know, really, really wanted someone to just shoot straight. And so they kind of opened themselves up to it. And so, and I think that can be a demonstration of love because I don't think we're doing our brothers and sisters in Christ a favor if we, if we can't even speak the truth, right? So we got to speak the truth, but we got to do so gently. We do so with respect. Well, this was fantastic. I appreciate all the feedback tonight and all the interaction. Those of you that were with us for the first time, we're so honored that you were with us tonight. So Julia, this was your first time with us and uh, really grateful to have you with us. Connie Lee, thank you so much for joining us from Alberta. Uh, we're just grateful to have you and everybody else that's, that's been a regular on here as well. And those of you listening on the podcast, we're grateful that you listen in and join us for our Bible studies. Always feel free to join us. If you want to find out more information about what we've got coming up, just go to the website, desirejesus.com slash Bible study, and you'll see the link to be able to join us. And you'll also see some of our upcoming topics and dates. And we would love to have you for one of our future get togethers, but that's it for us tonight. Thanks everybody for being part of it. And we look forward to catching up with you again next time. Have a great night. And one by one, I watched my dear friends get engaged, get married, 
start having children. And especially as a woman, I felt like there was a certain timeline that these things needed to happen in my life. Charity Gale shares a personal testimony on The Walk, a podcast for worshipers. Join us weekly to hear songwriters, worship leaders, filmmakers, and other creatives tell their stories in the form of a devotional. The Walk can be found on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast platform.